but let's dive in. And before we get into the text, I want to kind of set it up with kind of a narrative, uh, a story from my past. I, like many young men, found pornography very early. And it was something that I struggled with on and off throughout my whole childhood and middle school years and high school years. And then I became a Christian at 15. Miraculously, God intervened and met me and gave me a new heart, new desires. And I truly experienced this idea of being born again. It was absolutely amazing. And at 15, my addiction to porn was just broken like that. And for months, I was enjoying this blissful freedom no desires, no fallings. And then slowly, bad roots that were still in my heart that were hidden and bad habits resurfaced. And I found myself falling right back into that which I thought I was free from. And I remember struggling so much with my assurance. And assurance is this biblical term, this idea of, am I certain that God has actually saved me? See, because my logic went, if I truly was saved, if I truly loved Jesus, then I wouldn't keep going back to this horrific, perverse sin. And I remember falling and saying, God, I will never do that again. I remember what I'm feeling. I, 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 I'm going to internalize what I'm feeling, the shame I feel, all this stuff, and I will never go back to the sin again. I promise God I never will. And then I'd fall back after a week or two of victory, and I'd find myself in this vicious, vicious sin cycle. And I remember one day finding myself on the floor in fetal position as a 16-year-old and just crying and saying, God, I I don't know why I keep falling. And, And I had these thoughts go to my head. I know that the preacher said that Jesus can forgive all sin. And 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 if I ask for forgiveness and I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me. But maybe, maybe it's not for me. Maybe that promise is for other people. Maybe I'm too beyond the grace of God. Maybe some of you here have felt that before. Maybe the grace of God is for other people, but for me, I've, I've exhausted the grace of God. There is no grace for me. For I've continued to spit on his face after promising I would never go back again. And so the question that haunted me for the first few years of my Christianity was, how can God accept me though I fail so often? Now, there's a second question that haunted me also is, how do I fight? I used to use all kinds of crazy, unbiblical tactics to fight sin because I wasn't taught or discipled. You guys remember when computer monitors had like that gray, thick border, right? And it was a huge kind of screen like this. You, kinda, you would have to carry a monitor like this rather than this, right? One day I had the idea that, you know what, I'm going to remind myself so that I never go back to lust again. I'm going to take a Sharpie and I'm going to write all over my family's family living room computer monitor. And I'm going to write stuff like, angels are watching you, Sam. (laughs) And all these other kind of slogans. I never asked my parents. I cannot believe they never reacted. I don't know why. To this day, I do not know why my parents did not lose their mind that I took a Sharpie and wrote all over the computer monitor. And you know what? That tactic lasted for like a day. I would see the monitor and say, oh man, people are watching me in the heavenlies. I don't want to fall into this egregious pornography again. 
but then eventually I went right back. And so throughout my early Christian years, I was haunted by that question. How can God, a holy good God, accept me though I continually run from him? And then second, how do I actually fight sin on the day today? Let me ask you this. What if there was someone who always succeeded, who was always worthy of acceptance, who never failed, never even in the worst moments of their life when it would be most acceptable and reasonable and understandable for them to fail, even in those moments they did not fail and give in to anything? What if there was someone like that? What if someone who exposed all the enemy's tactics and gave us a handbook on how to defeat him also. And what if there was a man who had such a perfect record of victory that would actually share his record of victory with us? What if there was someone like that? And for those of you who know your Bibles, you know there is someone like that. In our text today, we will see that the only one who never failed and never sinned, even when the deck was stacked against him, he never gave in to any temptation or trial. So here, here's kind of like the main point. Despite all hell breathing down on him, Jesus is faithful to overcome every test. Despite all of hell coming down on Jesus, he is faithful. He's the only faithful one. So now let's look at our text. If you haven't turned to Luke chapter 4 yet, please do in your Bibles. There is a treasure trove for us here. I want to give you a little context if you are, haven't been with us in the series through Gospel of Luke. But last week, Pastor Ross helped us see that Jesus is the true Son of God. And he kind of traced back using the genealogy. If you've ever heard a sermon better than Ross's sermon on the genealogy, you send it my way because that was an amazing sermon on the genealogy. Amen? Anyone? He made that thing sing and sting. And as you walk through the genealogy, you would see that there were numerous sons of God. First being Adam, and he failed. Secondly, being the people of Israel, and they failed. And throughout the genealogy, every single person, though they may have high points, they all had low points. And in the moments of intense trial, they almost all failed. And so we are scratching our heads looking for a faithful son. Last week at Jesus' baptism, or two weeks ago, we also heard that Jesus is this beloved son whom God is well pleased in. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And so the question that Luke is begging is, will this son of God be like the other sons of God? Will this son of God fail like all the other ones? Will he have a big flash in the pan entry and then fail like all the other ones? Now, before we get into the temptation of Jesus, which is what this is often called, we need to talk about quickly what this word temptation means or tempt. Now, this word tempt is a tricky word because in English, we have certain connotations of the word tempt, right? You would never use the word tempt for something very positive. Hey, I tempt you to be kind. Right, that, that would not make sense in a sentence. It has an evil, negative connotation. Now, the word tempt in Greek, I want you to say it with me, parazo. Parazo. It, it had a, a more richer, fuller understanding than we do. It, it, it represented not just negative, but also positive. See, a word that we could use is the word test. 
See, a test isn't necessarily trying to bring out evil in you, but it wants to see if there is evil in you. It also can reveal good in you. If you look at Deuteronomy 8, chapter, verse 2, the Lord uses this same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God had led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you. That's that word. Test, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so the testing that Yahweh did upon his people of Israel was a way to reveal and expose what was truly there. Temptations do not cause sin, they expose sin. No temptation makes you sin, it just, very, barely, it just merely reveals what's already there. I don't know if you guys remember when I did this family talk a, a few months ago about biblical counseling, fruit to root, and, and that whole thing. I talked about a, a glass if you have a glass and it's full of water and you shake it, why does water come out? Because what? Water's in it. If the glass is empty, you could do every kind of shake move you want. Nothing's coming out of that glass, right? Because there's nothing in it. So Jesus is about to get shook. And the question is, what's going to come out? He's about to go through the greatest temptation or trial or test that he's ever experienced up to this point. And the question is, what will come out? See, like a sponge is full of some substance, when it's squeezed, it will come out. What will happen to Jesus when he's squeezed? Will he be faithful? Will there be evil coming out of him, like all the other sons of God, or will there be good? So let's see. Let me give you an idea of kind of where we're heading in this text, an overall outline for those linear thinkers here. So in the very first verse, two verses, it's going to just introduce us and give us this idea that Jesus is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he's not eating for 40 days. Then it's going to go over three tests. Now these three tests are going to all have similarities between them. First of all, each one, Satan's going to challenge Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And he's going to say something like this. If you are the son of God, then you must or should or will do this. And then every single one, Jesus is going to respond with an answer from the word of God. You follow me? If this, then this, and then Jesus answers. Every single time. Three tests in a row. In the very end, the text leaves us kind of on a cliffhanger. All right, now let's jump into the text. Verse 1, if you haven't looked yet at Luke 4. Luke 4, 1 through 2. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Notice that the text starts off with Jesus is being led by the Spirit. So God wants him here. God is directing him. God is leading him to do these actions. He's not just doing it because he likes to not eat and torture his body for 40 days. The Spirit of God that just came upon him is now filling him and leading him into the wilderness. And notice verse 2, it says this, for 40 days, 40 days, that word 40, that number 40 is very significant if you've read the Bible before, right? You've heard 40 over and over if you've read your Bible carefully, and one of the most notable 40s is 40 years in the wilderness. The first 40 that we remember is these 40 years that Israel was taken into the wilderness, and as we just saw in Deuteronomy 8, tested to see what was in their hearts. And they failed miserably. 
over and over and over and over again, despite Yahweh's mercy and his persistence in pursuing their hearts, they failed. And now here's the question that Luke is trying to use by, by using this 40 and explaining this, is will this son of God fail like they did too? In the wilderness, will they fail, will Jesus fail like Israel failed? The text reads, being tempted by the devil. Do you see that in verse two? For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. If you look at the original language here in Greek, it, it, it's not just simply that he was tempted one time or these three times. It suggests here that for the 40 days of not eating and being alone in the wilderness, he was being tempted continually by the, the devil. Now, you and I may have had a rough 40 days, this last 40 days, but none of us have been alone in the wilderness with Satan alone, tempting you while you're fasting. A lot of us probably had a pretty rough seven days when we just finished this water fast a couple of weeks ago, but none of us can say, yeah, I was like trapped in a room alone with Satan for, for 40 days. I mean, this is intense trial. And if you can't imagine what 40 days is like, your body is in starvation mode. You, you, you are breaking down. You are on the brink of death. Imagine whatever you did, if you did the seven-day fast with us, and then imagine doing that for an entire month and then some. And that's kind of the state Jesus was. And imagine not having community. Imagine not having boxer and other people encouraging you and, and reaching out to you and us having prayer here and the pastors encouraging you and sending you different things. Imagine you just being in the wilderness by yourself for 40 days while Satan himself, one of many demons, is just harassing you. That, that's the, the kind of context we are seeing. The last verse and line in verse two, this phrase says, the most obvious line you can imagine. Can you read this with me? He was hungry. Now, that sounds like a duh moment, right? A duh comment. And the reason why that's not a duh comment is because we need to know that Jesus is a man. It wasn't like, and after 40 days, Jesus felt fine and could handle anything he felt like handling because he's Jesus. He was hungry. See, if you fast long enough, the hunger pains will go away, but eventually they kind of come right back. Jesus was hungry. The author is trying to help us realize that he was human. He was limited like us. He hungered like us. And in that state, that desperate state, that's when temptations came. I want to make a point, a really important point that's been haunting me all week. And this is the line that just keeps going in my head. Satan doesn't fight fair. Satan does not fight fair. He is not like a gentleman general who realizes you have a holiday so he will not attack you on that day. He doesn't play by the rules. He waits till you're at your worst moment where the excuses are as high as the sky and then he strikes. You will never meet someone who falls into some egregious sin that gets onto the news and, and they're like, well, you know, everything was just fine and then I fell into the sin. There's always context. There's always situations. Oh, I was tired or I had a few too many drinks or my wife wasn't attentive to me that year or that we just had a baby or I had a lot of stresses at home. There was always gonna be excuses piling around any large fall. And so Satan is looking for this. He's looking for the chink in the army. He's looking for the open door to get in. 
And that's why it's really important for us to increasingly grow in self-awareness. Every time you fall into sin, it's very important for you to do post-game um, film sessions, just like in a sport, right? Hey, why do I keep turning the ball over? Well, let's hit the film and figure out why you do that, right? Sorry for those who guys didn't follow that sports analogy. I don't do that too often, do I? Every time you screw up, look back and say, okay, what is, let's rewind and figure out what led me to this path. And as you grow in Christ and you get older, you start to figure out, oh, I can't stay up late. My brain and my willpower just degenerates after midnight. Or maybe some of you are like, 8 p.m. You need to learn yourself. I, oh, when I'm lonely, greatest temptation comes. Okay, so you need to know that. When I'm stressed, when I'm discouraged, whatever it is, when it's a certain time of the month, if you know what I'm saying, right? You need to know yourself because Satan already knows you. He already has the notes on you. And if you don't know and don't have notes on yourself, guess what? He does. And he's waiting for those open doors. You got to know yourself, and that's one of the beauties of community and having those brothers and sisters who walk with you long enough to know you well enough to be able to preemptively fight for you in those moments. Preachers like myself, after a sermon, we exhaust a lot of our energy, our emotion, our heart, and we are most susceptible to falling into some sort of discouragement or lust or pride right after. And when I was in a DNA with Theo, he knew that, and he would often follow up on a really heavy Sunday. He'd follow up on Monday morning or that night because he walked with me long enough to see where I could be susceptible to. It's a beautiful thing to have a DNA like that, and I encourage us to get to know each other and our DNA well enough to where we know, hey, hey, we've gone through this cycle before. Let's take a step before. Let me, let me help you before the, the tidal wave comes. Now, let's look at closer look at these three tests. So, test number one is a test of satisfaction and provision, if you're a note taker. Satisfaction and provision. See, this first test focused on if Jesus will look to God for his provision and trust his ways and his method and his plan, or look to himself and put it in his own hands. So, keeping in mind that Jesus was actually human and he was hungry, look at verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. Remember, each time Jesus is going to be attacked at his identity. He just heard that he's the son, that God is pleased. And whenever you get an encounter with God, a revelation of God's pleasure towards you, you better believe that Satan's going to come and try to snatch that away from you right away. This is common. This is an old play in his book. So he says, if you are the son of God, you must do this. So, so let me ask you this very simple question. What's wrong with turning stone into bread? That sounds pretty cool. Have you guys ever read that? And like, I mean, Jesus, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Well, two things I want to highlight. There's probably more. One, it questions the goodness and wisdom of God. It questions the wisdom and goodness of God. See, if Jesus is a son, then the son must live. If the son doesn't eat, he will die. And so, Jesus, you have to reasonably eat. And remember, who is leading Jesus into the wilderness to fast? The Spirit, and the Spirit works in concert with the Father. And so basically, Satan is saying, hey, the Father doesn't know what's best for you. He's not looking out for you. He doesn't know. You need to take this into your own hands. Don't listen to the Father right now. 
Jesus, you're the Messiah, bro. You're the son. If you die, everything dies with you. You got to take it into your own hands and just make that stone into a delicious, gluten-free loaf of bread. Just kidding. Gluten wasn't bad then. All right. If he did, why did I say that? All right. Jesus could have easily rationalized that moment, right? God doesn't want his own son to die, right? God's a loving God. He's not abusive. I must eat this food. I have a mission to accomplish. It'll all work out in the end, right? No one will know. It would just be between me and Satan because I'm alone here. See, the ends does not justify the means. If there was a time that people would understand, be like, Jesus, we get it. I mean, dude, you were alone and you didn't eat for 40 days. If there's ever a time we could give him a pass, it would be here. And yet he does not make excuses. He does not rationalize disobedience. God called him here and led him to fast, and he will not break it until God says so. There's something you'll learn right there about Jesus. Sometimes we make excuses, don't we? Well, I was tired, and you know, like, God understands my heart. He gets me. He knows. Jesus is not having any of that. Here's the second problem with turning stone into bread. It's rejecting his humanity. Rejecting his humanity. Jesus never, 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 ever uses his power for his own gain. Quickly scan through the Bible in your head. When do you see Jesus being like, man, I'm just tired. I'm going to just float over there, you know? Oh, man, I just wish I... He never uses it for self-gain. He actually uses his power to divest power to bless others. He empties himself of power to bless others. He doesn't use it for his own kicks. I would do all kinds of messed up things if I had Jesus' power when I was on the earth. Oh, man, I'll tell you sometime, all these weird like fantasies I have of what I would do to the disciples when they're annoying me and different things like that. Jesus never uses his power like Sam Choi would. So he's, he, he's guarding himself from rejecting his humanity because he needs to be like us. He's putting himself in our situation, in our shoes, in, in our weaknesses. Let me direct you to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. See, Jesus needed to be human partly because of this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus went through the grind. He's someone we can relate with. It's not some super, you know, um, what's that word, demigod, that, that we're like, yeah, Jesus is great and all, but like he's not like us. He didn't suffer. He didn't feel depression and all the oppression that we feel. No, he felt it more. He felt it more. Have you ever had Satan hound you for 40 days in the wilderness? Yeah, probably not. And yet Jesus was faithful. Let me read this really powerful quote. By saying this, oh no, can you read that? Great, you have great eyes. All right, by saying this, Jesus was, when I say saying this, it's man shall not live on bread alone. Man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus was identifying himself as a human being. It was a man that he stood against the devil. Jesus was not masquerading as a man, a divine mind trapped in a human body. He was fully human, body and soul. Thus, it was in his humanity that he withstood the wiles of Satan. We need to see this because usually we think that it's easy for Jesus to resist temptation. He was God after all. Yet the Bible also says that Jesus was made in our own human nature. 
that he was fully man and that therefore in every respect he had been tempted as we are. Understand this, Jesus did not resist the temptation of Satan by the superior power of his deity, but in all the weakness of his humanity. This gives us hope. Sometimes we say, we sin because we cannot help it. But by the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, we too have the ability to resist the devil because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen? Amen. Let's just be clear. Jesus is also deity. We sang that today. But in some profound mystery, he is also fully human, both fully present in him. So how did Jesus fight? The question is then, if we want to learn from how did he fight, let's look at his answer. He uses the power of the word. Look at verse 4, Luke 4, 4. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. Notice, he's not denying that man shall live on bread. He says the word alone. He shall live on bread, but not alone on bread. He also needs something far greater, and that's the words of the Father. He needs obedience. He needs to hear from his Father more than he needs bread, but also as he needs bread. The priority here is important. Notice how Jesus fights Satan. He doesn't will himself out of this temptation like I try to do. He doesn't grit his teeth and say, I, I just don't want, I don't want to look at you, you know? If, like someone who offers you and you're on keto diet or some great diet and you don't want to eat cake and someone puts the cake right next to you and you're like, no, no, I won't look. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't fight with the same weapons we fight with. See, in the moment of temptation, reality is unclear. Our identity is confused. Truth seems subjective. And we don't know what to trust. Our bodies scream something else than our minds or our hearts that we know better. And, and so what does Jesus do? He just speaks the word. He doesn't rationalize. He doesn't have him back and forth. and say, well, well, maybe he doesn't. He doesn't try to think about, well, maybe I could just put a little nibble. Maybe like one of those like communion sites. He doesn't, he doesn't rationalize or kind of create any. He just shuts him down. He just says no and quotes the word and shuts him down. Some of us here need to stop having conversations with the devil. Weighing the pros and cons. Circling around and around. Oh, is that technically sin? Or maybe I won't get caught, or, or God will forgive me. Just having, just shut him down. Don't let the foothold get solidified in your heart. Don't let the tentacles start to grow. For every time you go back and reconsider the case, it gets a little harder to say no. You shut it down right when it comes, and you do it with the Word of God. This implies that you need to know the word of God. If you are not, if you are a Christian, then you are committed to killing sin and fighting against the evil one in his lies. And if that's the case, then you're also committed to memorizing this word, hiding it in your heart that you may not sin against him. If you are not treasuring God's word and memorizing God's word, you will not fight him well long term. You have to make this part of your life. And that's why we're doing Romans 8. Because Romans 8 is full of ammunition for you to shoot at the devil when he comes at you. And if you've fallen off a train, like I have, 
just get back on. Joanne and I were like, we're just going to keep it into February because we didn't finish in January. Just hop right back on. It's just a lifetime of, of just treasuring God, word in your heart, and being ready to just fire at him and just shoot it in his face. If Jesus Christ did not think he can handle the temptations of Satan without God's word, why do you think you can? Can you be so arrogant to think that Jesus needed that weapon and yet you and your power can without? How arrogant and foolish is that? So Jesus faithfully overcomes the first test. Now the second and third tests are going to go along a little further. So if you're getting antsy, I'm going to move along. Test number two, it's a test of comfort and glory. The second test, Jesus, Satan is going to challenge Jesus' allegiance to the Father, but also his commitment to the road of suffering ahead. Look at verse five with me. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been given to me. Or other translation says, relinquish to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. Notice this term, it has been delivered to me or relinquished to me, if you have that in your translation. See, once Adam rebelled against God and sinned, he forfeited his rightful position as a co-heir with God on this earth. And somehow, I don't know how it worked, Satan took up that mantle. And Jesus affirms this in John chapter 12, verse 31, that Satan is the ruler of the world in some sense. And so Satan has authority. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're wrong. That's not true. He actually doesn't deny the, sta- the, the, the facts of the case that Satan is bringing to him. So there's some truth here that Satan has rulership and authority over these kingdoms. And so basically the irony of this whole thing is that Jesus will one day indeed inherit all these kingdoms. And yet in a flash, Jesus Satan is saying, hey, I can give you all of them without any suffering. I can give you the crown without the cross. I can give you the destination without the road. That's tempting, huh? See, Jesus had limited knowledge in in, in some ways the gospel suggests, but he he knew at some level he was going to suffer and die a horrific death. And yet Satan is offering it all without that. And yet, Jesus knows that if he were to get all the kingdoms of the world, you know what he would not have in the kingdoms? People. (laughs) Because Jesus had to deal with their greatest issue first. He needed to deal with their penalty and their perverse hearts if he's going to have the kingdom. So before he could get the bride, he needed to win her heart first. He needed to pay the bride price before he can get the kingdoms. Jesus knew that. So Jesus does not get in cahoots with Satan. This language here of worshiping him is not merely just saying, hey, let me just do a quick bow, all right? Didn't mean it in my heart, ha <laughs> ha, cross my fingers. It's, I'm gonna have allegiance with you. So Jesus, again, does not entertain Satan's temptation. He shuts him down. Look at verse eight, Jesus' answer. Jesus answered him and said, it is written, Again, he says, it is written. This is reality. This is truth. No matter how I feel, no matter what my body wants right now, it is reality. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That word, it is written, is a powerful word to hold in your pocket. When you feel temptation, you can just shout out, it is written. 
Notice Jesus doesn't say, I'd really like to, but I can't because the Bible says so. Only God is worthy of worship and service, and you're not God, Satan. He's not only denying him worship and saying, like, I can't do it because the Bible says so. He's literally saying, I can't worship you, dude. You're not God. Only God deserves worship and service. Now, Satan is no dummy. He's picking up a pattern. Every time I tempt Jesus or test Jesus, he comes back at me and just pushes me away immediately with the word of God. So Satan says to himself, hey, okay, I know the word of God too. I've been around. I'm pretty old. And so in the third test, Satan takes a play from Jesus and he takes the word of God and he uses it as a weapon against Jesus. Now look at verse nine. It's the final test. It's a test of trusting God. Test three. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, just real quick, this pinnacle is probably this royal porch that Josephus, Josephus, the historian, would say would would be about 450 feet from the the valley. So this is a huge drop. Josephus, help me guys, Josephus mentioned that certain visitors who would just even look over would get dizzy, it's so high. So perhaps Jesus was taken up there or in a vision he was up there and he says this, again, if then. If you are the son of God, right? Accusing him, challenging his authority, his identity, then throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he's quoting Psalms now, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan is twisting God's word in order to cause Jesus or encourage Jesus to violate God's ways. But this is not something that Jesus, that Satan has only done once at this point. He's done this before. Do you remember? See, another son of God had this same temptation. Look at Genesis chapter 3. It's on the screen. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so this is a old, the oldest trick in his book. He takes God's word and he questions it. He twists it. He takes it out of context. So let me be clear. We have a lot of people out there speaking for God. We have never ever in history did all you need is a smartphone and then you had an, a global audience. You got a lot of YouTubers out there doing Bible studies and you got a lot of people on TV talking about God. And you know what? They all use the Bible. You know, every time a Jehovah's Witness comes to my door, they don't seem to do it anymore, but they used to, they always say, hey, we want to do a Bible study. And I'm like, oh, really? A Bible study? Okay. And I take my Greek Bible out. And anyway, that's why they don't come anymore. But, but, but the reason why I bring that up is because they always use the Bible, except they just terribly take it out of context. And you know who they got that from? Satan. That's what he does. And so just because you hear some preacher on, the, on Twitter or someone putting something out and using a scripture does not mean it's God's word. So what do you need to do? You need to check the context. You always got to look at the context. That's why I love this term, never read a verse. Never read a verse. Always look at the paragraph and the chapter and the whole section. Never read a verse. This is really important. We need, as a church, our members to be wise in God's word Never read just a verse because people out there are wolves. There, there are wolves. I'm not saying every person is a wolf. And there are wolves out there who will twist the scriptures. <clears throat> Again, Jesus does not entertain his temptations, his words. He just shuts them down. Jesus answers, verse 12, 
It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, let me ask you a question. What's wrong with testing God? Doesn't God understand how frail we are? Shouldn't he just meet us where we're at? Let me, let me show a great quote from this, this one scholar, Daryl Bach. It's on the screen. A final way we tend to show a lack of trust in God is to try to force him to act on our behalf. In the test, we often set up, we want to see if he is for us or against us. This type of spiritual wagering does not involve leaping from tall buildings, but in walking to events where we say, in effect, if you care for me, God, then this situation will turn out this way. In effect, we test the emergency broadcast system of God's presence and presume on how he should react. This kind of testing is an attempt to control God, not follow his leading. We are setting ourselves up for disappointment since it may be in our best interest for events to go in a different direction than we desire. See, think about the arrogance of testing God, of us, the creation, looking to the creator and saying, you proved yourself to me. You do this. You give me that marriage or you give me that job or you give me that situation that I want and then, then, and only then will I serve you. What kind of relationship would you have with someone if that was the foundation of it? A challenge to his validity and reality and authority. For the Christian here, testing God is even more preposterous because as Romans 8.32 says to us, for if he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how much more shall he with him graciously give us all things? See, see when we test God as Christians, I can see the Father saying this, I gave you Jesus. I can't give you anything better. If I gave you Jesus, I, I'm telling you, I can give you, that's all, that's all I have. This is, this is the greatest treasure I have in my storehouse, my own son, my beloved son. And yet we say, that's not enough. I need another test. I need you to give me that thing. I need, you, I need to feel something. I need you to, to do this miracle. And then maybe I will follow you. If he gave him us his son, what else can he give us? And if that's not enough for you, you have a very low view of Jesus. Now, this whole passage ends on a cliffhanger, very, very scary cliffhanger, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Till an opportune time. How will Satan know when it's an opportune time? Well, he's watching. That's how he knows. He's looking. He's studying. While you sleep, he's not sleeping. This is true for us too. Look at 1 Peter 5.8, a very, very important message, a verse to have internalized. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. It's on the screen if you don't know that. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Notice this language, prowl. It's not just prance. And when I, I'm just going to attack you randomly. He's prowling, looking for the opening. Oh, they just got discouraged. Oh, they had conflict. This is the time. Oh, they're tired. This is the time. Oh, tragedy happened. This time. Oh, they lost a job. This is the time. Oh, they're getting proud because all these good things are happening. This is the time. He's prowling, looking for the open door. See, that's, that's terrifying. That's why we must be sober-minded and watchful. And so as we wrap up, well, just be clear, and he continued to prowl for Jesus until he found him at his worst state, right before the cross. And yet Jesus stood that test too. 
Let me go back to the early question I posed at the beginning as I kind of bring this home. The question that I asked as a young Christian, as I kept falling right back into the same addictions that I promised and vowed I'd never fall again to, how can God accept me though I fail? How can God accept me though I continually fail? All of us here have tests all the time, every week. And those tests reveal what's inside. Remember, we get shaken or shook. And whatever is inside will come out, the junk or the good. And we all, like Adam and Israel, will fail and have failed in these times. And the accuser has come and will come, just like he did for Satan, uh, for Jesus, and just like he's done in the past for us, and he will challenge our identity. He will say things like, well, if you truly were a child of God, would you have fallen again? There's no way God can look at you, Sam. How dare you, Sam, preach to them on Sunday and yet go back into the filth on Monday? Look at what you did. There's no way God can forgive you. You just asked for forgiveness yesterday. How could you fall back into that same pattern of sin or that anger or that greed or that selfishness? How could you do that when you just asked them? You have no sincerity in your heart, Sam. And here's the good news for all of us, especially me, is that you don't have to pass the test. The test has already been passed with flying colors. It's already been passed. And the good news is he shares his grade book with us. He shares his transcript with us. See, the moments when we fail, this is what you say. As the Satan accuses us, condemns us, lies in us, his little whispering tongue. You're right, Satan, I have failed. And many more times than you even know. And yet, you're right, God shouldn't love me. However, Jesus stood the test. He is the perfect one. He was condemned for my failures and sin, and now I'm forgiven and clean because of him. See, when Martin Luther was asked how he overcome the devil, he says this. This is such a great quote. It's not on, on the screen. Just listen. Well, when he comes knocking, when Satan comes knocking on the door of my heart and asks, who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here but he has moved out. Now I live here. See, Satan will point at you and try to get you to look at yourself and your history and your junk and your failures. And you, at that moment, have a critical, critical job. You must simply tilt his head and direct him towards the cross and point to Christ. Get his attention on Christ. When he points at you and says, sinner, just point at the cross and say, Sinless. When he points at you and says faithless, you point at the cross and say faithful. And on and on and gone. Whatever you hear, the Satan, whenever Satan accuses you and whatever lie he's telling you and however he is condemning you, you just point to Christ and say, yeah, you're right, but look at him. And what he has is what I have now. If you're not putting your trust in Jesus today, let me just speak to you if you're not trusting Christ. You will fail like we all have. And you've already failed like we all have. And one day, you are going to stand before God. You will see him. And on that day, you're either going to be standing with someone else by your side, Jesus, 
as your advocate, as your representative, or you're going to be standing alone. The only way you can be accepted by God is if you have the right man by your side. Your good deeds will not be good enough. Your good intentions will not be good enough. Your family heritage will not be good enough. The fact that your mama goes to church and prays for you will not be good enough. You will be by yourself if you are not putting your trust in Christ. And so if that is you, I beg of you, come to him. Repent of your own kingdom, your allegiance to self, and surrender it to King Lord Jesus. And follow him. And you know what? If you trust him, he will give you his spirit to give you power to follow him, and he will adopt you as one of his blood-bought children. And if you want to know more about that, please come talk to us. And a great opportunity is to get baptized this Wednesday. Say, I'm going to die to my own kingdom, my own life, and I'm going to put on Christ, and I'm going to be washed. All my sins will be washed away. That can happen for you this Wednesday. So, So please come talk with us. And so let me conclude with this. Christian, who are you putting your confidence in today? Who are you putting your confidence and hope in? Is it because you have a great streak this week in your sin fighting? Or because you have good background or you read your Bible every day? Or are you putting your, obedient, your hope in Christ and his obedience? So church, this week all of us are going to fail at some point. We will be tested and the dirty junk will come out inevitably. In those moments, let us look to Jesus, the only one who was shaken and only goodness came out. He is our record. He is our confidence. He is our goodness. He is our only hope. And so let me end with reading the lines from the hymn we sang earlier from Martin Luther. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be loosing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Who asks who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that one little word will fell him. We don't need to dialogue with Satan. We don't need to rationalize with him. We don't need to outwill him or outlast him. We just merely need to say it is written. And we don't need to be good enough because you've been good enough. And if there's anyone here who's trying to be good enough, oh, let them just lay it down before you, God. Let them stop trying to fight on their own and try to make it on their own. Let them put their hope and trust in you and would you give them the power? And if there's anyone here who's doing that completely with their life and not trusting you and they're not yours and they will stand alone on that day, may they completely surrender right now, I ask, knowing that you are their only hope. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the right man on our side. You're the one that has the perfect record and because you had the perfect record, we have the perfect record in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for that good news. And let that be the reality that we all stand and live in this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.